Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here today. Um, I know normally that it seems like many Christians are afraid of rain, and I'm glad that many of you are not and you're here. Um, So uh, before I get started, I just want to say something. You know, I haven't been able to talk to many of the members of the Grace Life worship team in months. So for you guys, if you're still (coughs) listening, uh, I want to thank you for all the hard work you're doing. Uh, being over there alone by yourselves at McCurdy's every week. Um, we miss you, but I'm just going to tell you, when I was watching the room, the room is really captivated by the worship, even though you're leading from a TV screen. You're doing a fantastic job. We miss you, and we're working on many things. Hopefully, we'll all be together again soon. You'll be hearing more about that as we get details. But I want you to know our leadership team is working very hard on these things uh, daily and weekly, uh, addressing that issue. <coughs> so I'm going to get started with... Uh, This is week number 46. Put it over there for me so it'll click. Week number 46. Uh, There we go. I'm going to go back. There we go. Dangers of success part one. So let me explain this to you. Remember when your favorite TV show would have like a double episode? Like when Seinfeld was an hour long, I loved it. Like, that was awesome. I loved it except on those times that they were split up by week. And I had to wait for 30 minutes to find out if George got out of the mess he got himself into. I didn't like that, right? I hated that. Well, unfortunately for you, this is a two-week sermon episode. It's two sermons in a row, but they're going to be separated by week. So you might have a little bit of a cliffhanger, but you'll get over it. So let me do, I don't have a whole lot of, introductory thoughts, because this passage is actually kind of heavy. Have you ever had a moment where you learned something about yourself that just made you sad? Like there was truth that was revealed to you, however it was, through a sermon, a friend, a counseling session, maybe in recovery or something like that, a truth is revealed to you about yourself that rocked you to your core. Maybe it even broke your heart a little. That's exactly what happens in today's story about the rich young ruler who has a gut-wrenching, powerful, intimate and personal interaction with Jesus. But here's the scary part about it, church. We may need to have that same type of interaction with Jesus today. Maybe corporately, but also individually. Because the more I worked on this message this week, the more I realized just how much like the rich young ruler in this story we all actually are. So let's read it. It's from Mark chapter, uh, somehow the passage is missing. I'll just read it again. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22. And he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do do not defraud and honor your mother and your father. And the rich young ruler said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these things perfectly from my youth. But then Jesus looked at him... loved him, 
Very interesting. He looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then leave home and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So we're going to break down the history first of this passage. I've called this section Jesus Passing By. So we understand that the scripture says this guy is a rich young ruler. So we we can deduct from that that this is a young man who is rich and powerful. So what's going on is Jesus is leaving Perea where he's been for probably about three months. And he's continuing up the Jordan River, probably the east side of the Jordan River. And he's headed toward Jerusalem. And while he's going, many people are looking to latch on in some way. This is sort of Jesus near the height of his popularity, which will continue to its climax on when? Palm Sunday, when he enters in Jerusalem. So he's getting more and more popular, even though he knows he's going closer and closer to the cross. And now, even the rich, at first it was a lot of the poor and the disenfranchised, but now even the rich and powerful want a part of this movement. And as Jesus is leaving his town, leaving this region, this man, who is everything a young Jewish man could hope to be, runs to catch up to Jesus. He's got riches, he's popular, he's successful, and he sees Jesus leaving town, and right before Jesus leaves town, he runs after him. He's called a ruler, which probably means, in this particular setting, he had some sort of position of authority or honor in a local synagogue. He wasn't a Roman ruler. He probably had some sort of eldership. And it was probably very unusual for a young man of this age, but he had a lot of money, probably had a good personality, probably very intelligent, very successful. And so he's a very unusual person. He probably would have been very well-known. This was a position that would be reserved for older men, with a record of unusual religious achievement in their young life. He probably owns lands, he probably has servants, he's politically connected, he is very unusually successful for his age. The guy's a superstar. He's like me in my early 20s, so just so you understand. Just kidding. Interestingly enough, of course, he has no cares of this world. He doesn't need any food, like the 5,000 Jesus fed. He doesn't need any healing for him or any children. All he wants to do is interact with a very famous rabbi before this rabbi leaves town. It would be a real feather in his cap if he could get connection with Jesus, who everybody's talking about. And since Jesus is very close by, it would be very convenient just to catch up with him now rather than wait to see him in Jerusalem later during the feast days. Right? Makes sense. And so the next part of this historical lesson is, I've entitled, Good Outside. So while Jesus has been rejected by the religious elite, this guy comes running after Jesus. This is admirable, right? You think? Running after someone is a sign of tremendous humility and servitude and adulation. It is a ceremonial act more than anything else. And then the scripture says he kneels before him. So this rich young ruler with this incredible reputation, runs after Jesus. Everybody would see it. Wow, look at that guy. Look at Bill Gates running. He's running after Jesus. Look at that. 
And he gets in front of Jesus and kneels. Wow, did you see that? Bill Gates is kneeling in front of Jesus. This is remarkable. Don't let this go in one ear and out the other. This is a very ceremonial, public acknowledgement that he sees Jesus as a highly respected rabbi. He's like the goat of rabbis. Greatest of all time for you older people who don't know what goat means. Greatest G of, oh, never mind, okay. This is a wealthy, prestigious leader in the synagogue. These people would never kneel in front of anyone except for a very reserved few. And we see even more of this in how he addresses Jesus. Fascinating word study here. Okay, I want to look at this word. It's a compound word, didaskale. There are two words put together, and it's amazing. The first word in this compound word is didaske, which means to teach. One who teaches is really what this tense would mean. And you'll notice it is a capital D. So you can see, didask, you see the lowercase d would be the third letter in. This is a capital D. That means it is a proper name. The second part of this word is kale, which means good. So a capitalized good teacher. But that's not all. He goes forward with another capitalized word, and it's agathe. This word means deep goodness or perfection, something worthy to be admired. This is an emphatic, formal title. Perfect and good teacher, or perfect teacher of the good. Perfect, good master. This is what this rich young ruler publicly declares Jesus as being as he kneels down. Capitalized, proper titles, honor, reverence, respect, running and kneeling before Jesus, calling him good, perfect master, good, perfect teacher, teacher of the perfect good, however you want to jumble it around. It's all the same concept. It's an impressive display of honor, really, and respect to Rabbi Jesus from this young, wealthy, revered synagogue leader. And it looks good on the outside, right? I mean, giving Jesus his due? The problem is, he was hopeless inside. He's a good, decent, respectable, successful man. But he's still searching for affirmation. He's sincere in his spirituality. And he wants to know, Jesus, how do you think I'm doing? And he asked Jesus this question. The problem is, the rich young ruler believes he already knows the answer to the question. But he just wants this great rabbi to say it out loud. This is not like the Pharisees who always tried to ask Jesus questions, right, as a setup to try to catch him in some sort, of, some, some sort of legal trap. This is a sincere question. Jesus, what must I be to do to be assured that I have eternal life after death? He's asking the right question, right? He's asking the right person. This is great. There's a big problem. It's a huge problem. This man as accomplished as he is, has put all his hope in a hopeless system. So that describes him. Now let's talk about the spiritual aspect. What about God? What does he do? And why and how does he do it? I want to talk about the fact that this man was not even close. See, in many ways, I don't know if you guys remember, but this is actually, this story is kind of like a very condensed version of something we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Sermon on the Mount was several chapters. If you ever like have ADD and you want to learn about Sermon on the Mount, just read these five, five verses and you got it. Remember, Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus taught that keeping the law is actually impossible. Throughout that sermon, he would explain the intent of each command and the true standard of what it meant to keep it. If you look upon a woman, you've committed adultery. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. See, he was teaching that the law does not serve any purpose except for one, to reveal your sinfulness and to condemn you as a failure in righteousness. That's the only purpose of the law. But this man doesn't believe the law is that. See, the core of the gospel is that we cannot do enough to merit the kingdom. That's what the gospel is. So this is the fact that he's not even close. The first point I want to show you is that Jesus says, why do you call me good? He probably expected Jesus to say this. When he said, good and perfect teacher of everything that's great, what must I do to make sure that I get eternal life? He probably expected Jesus to say this. You're awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. Everybody knows you're successful, Bill. Gates. Just keep going the way you are. See, the man called Jesus good, but he really didn't understand why Jesus was good. And he probably, I don't think probably, I'm pretty confident, he equates the same standard of good that he ascribes to Jesus as applicable to himself, as we will see in just a moment. Jesus asks, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And Jesus, in that short answer, is revealing two things. First of all, that the good standard is unattainable. And second of all, Jesus is saying, I'm God. Very deep stuff. But this man cannot comprehend those two things. They're critical truths, and he has no idea, frankly, who he's talking to. He thinks it's a really good rabbi, but no, it's Jehovah. And then Jesus simply says, well, all you got to do now is just make sure you keep the law of Moses perfectly. And he lists some of them. And then this guy has an illusion of success, a delusion of success, if you will. The way he approached Jesus was in full ceremonial flattery, right? I went through that already. And like everyone else has done in his whole life, he expects Jesus to do the same thing everyone else has done, to affirm him. You're great. <clears throat> Look, it was impossible for this guy not to be completely in love with himself. I mean, he's been a superstar in his town, religiously, financially, socially. And he has tremendous confidence, right? When Jesus says, just keep the law, what does he say to Jehovah, who he doesn't realize is Jehovah? He says to Jesus, Jehovah, oh yeah, I have kept the law perfectly since my bar mitzvah, since my youth. Now, church, listen, do not miss. This is important. See, a lot of people like to take the gospel of Mark and preach these individual stories. You cannot. This is undeniably related to the sermon last week about coming like a baby. Right? Because this guy says, look, as soon as I was old enough, declared old enough to, de to pursue righteousness on my own, I did it, and I did it perfectly. Once I reached the official age of manhood at my bar mitzvah, I've been perfect. Now look, we could spend an hour right here showing that he was definitely a habitual lawbreaker like all of us. 
but the system that he was a part of had declared he was righteous. This may seem outrageous, all right, but it, it wasn't. Because there was actually, we're going through a pandemic right now. Well, the Jewish community at the time had a self-righteousness pandemic among Jewish men. Even like Paul himself. Remember what Paul said? He said, this was me and my mindset before Jesus. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Paul says, I was the bomb. You know, some people speculate the rich young ruler may have been Paul. We don't know that. There's like one or two commentaries I read, but either way, you could see Paul and this rich young ruler had the same mindset about their effectiveness, their success. But then I see something pretty amazing, and that is that Jesus loved him. See, Mark says that Jesus felt love for him, and it, frankly, it's a remarkable response, right? Because the Pharisees pretty much said the same thing he does. And what did Jesus do with them every time? He rejected them. He says, you guys are a waste of my time. Let's look at what this word means, because for you to understand what we're really supposed to glean from this passage, you've got to get this. It's so critical. The word for love is agapao. It means, it's a, it's a verb, so Jesus showed love. It's affection, compassion, empathy, or desire, goodwill for someone. Jesus wants him to be successful, not the way he has been, but in a new way. Why is this significant? Because like I said, it's so different for how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees who he condemned. Didn't even talk to them. And to understand what's being set up here, I'm going to take you to a verse in Proverbs. My son, despise not the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord repro reproves him who he loves as a father than son in whom he delights. This is what's going on here. This is not Jesus trying to diss him, put him on blast. This is Jesus saying, you know what? I really love this guy. He needs some interaction with me on a very deep, profound, gut-wrenching, soul-wrecking truth level. He sees this man <clears throat> as a victim. He's a victim of the same system that we have seen what? The disciples struggle to let go of week after week after week. And Jesus grieves for him with deep sympathy and with sorrow and affection. And in love, he says, you know what? I'm going to bless this man with an incredibly tough, heartbreaking conversation. And what Jesus does is he calmly, lovingly does some serious open heart surgery, revealing things to this man about himself. Things that he placed hope in life for. And he goes after the two most precious things that this man has accomplished. His wealth and his prestige. His self-righteousness. Okay, great. You've kept the law from the beginning. Good job. Just one more thing. And you got it made, my dear friend. Sell all your stuff. Give all the proceeds to the poor. Put your hope in heavenly treasure. Oh, and then by the way, leave your home you know, the one where you're very popular and loved and admired, leave there, come with me and suffer. Give up your wealth. <clears throat> leave the people who love you. Leave the people who admire you. 
Leave town with me. You know, I wonder if Jesus spoke more to this man. Probably did. The man probably had some questions. Wait, you can't mean everything, right? You just mean 10%, because that would be the standard in the Old Testament. Jesus says, no, get rid of all of it. And then leave the people who love you and follow me. Oh, and by the way, I wonder if Jesus told him, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm probably going to get killed. So just follow me. You'll have to leave the comfort of riches and home. Come with me to Jerusalem where I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be scorned. See, Jesus is demanding that this guy start a whole different life. He must let go of not just his money, but his position of honor and power. And Jesus says, there is no room for trust in anything for eternal life other than me. And the young man just cannot grasp this. The price is way too high. And motivated by love, though, Jesus is engaging him on an extremely intimate, personal level that I think could possibly have led to being the seeds of life for this man later. He went away saddened. Why is that? Why was he sad? Because his whole value system has been wrecked. I mean, it has been eviscerated. And he has a lot to think about. See, many assume this man never came around. We don't know that. I personally tend to think because Jesus loved him and had a conversation that was very different, and because Jesus says, all the Father has given me will come to me and no one can pluck them out of my hand. Remember all those passages? I believe it's very probable this man became a believer later. We don't know. But I'm not just going to assume he went away sad and died and lost his eternal life. <clears throat> all right, what about the personal section? I want to talk about Jesus in the neighborhood. <clears throat> so what is it we're supposed to learn from this passage? I think it's about love and tough conversations. How about you? You ready for one today? Are you sure? I can give you like a 30-second prayer. You can leave if you don't want it. Here's the sermon preview for this week. It's easy to follow Jesus when he's in the neighborhood, but when he leaves town, not so much. I want to describe you a little theological concept I conjured up called drive-by Jesus. I don't think we realize just how much many of us are just like this rich young ruler, maybe minus the money. See, I'm not necessarily talking about understanding the gospel. Yes, that is part of this passage, certainly. Understanding that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but for him. Yes, but that's not the only thing in this story. See, even as Christians, we have very little problem following Jesus when he's in our neighborhood, if you understand what I mean. Matter of fact, when he's close by, we'll even run after him, won't we? We'll kneel before him, we'll worship him, we'll call him Lord, King of Kings, good and perfect teacher. We'll even make sure we capitalize, sometimes when we're typing, and we'll say God, up oh, backspace, capital G, God, right? We'll give him his honor and his respect that he's due. We think and we talk about eternal life all the time. 
but we do it all in a way that is often in simpatico with where and how we are living at the moment, don't we? And because it all really starts, frankly, to look rather good, the kneeling, the running, the praying, the Lord God, you're great, good and perfect, it all looks pretty good. We get confident, don't we? We get comfortable with how we're doing. That's why I'm calling it drive-by Jesus. For many of us, if we're honest right now, having a tough conversation, that's kind of really the Jesus we would like to follow. When he's close to our life, and following him will not necessarily cost us as much as he's... Yes, I know that he says, give up everything and follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me, but maybe he doesn't really mean that for everyone. I mean, right now in Sarasota, I could probably just take up half a cross. The fact is, we want to follow a Jesus that won't cost too much, demand too much travel, cause too many tears or pain. What we really want is the health and wealth Jesus. If you do this, you're going to get blessing and blessing and blessing and joy and happiness. Your family's going to be healthy. You're going to live a long life. You'll have cars. You'll have planes. you have boats and trains. Maybe not trains. Nobody really wants a train anymore. But you get all the other stuff. We want to follow a Jesus that fits our agenda and fits our schedule. Yes, we know we're supposed to forsake all and follow him, but we really, if we're honest, we kind of ignore that, because right now he's in our neighborhood, and we don't have to forsake all. He's right here with us, so we don't have to really follow him. We can just be around him. (laughs) Where is our neighborhood? I mean, it could be money. Your neighborhood could be reputation. It could be self-righteousness. It could be anything. Maybe your neighborhood is recovery. Maybe it's an unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship. I don't know what your neighborhood is. Frankly, that's something Jesus will have to reveal to you in an intimate, private, soul-wrecking conversation between you and him, like he did with the rich young ruler, like he did with me this week. But I'm going to talk about being sweetly broken. <clears throat> track with me here. It is so easy, so easy to focus on the sadness in this story. A man walking away from Jesus because he loves things more than Jesus. But as I began to think through, I realized I'm actually kind of jealous of this man. Why would I be jealous of this man? This one that everyone assumes went to hell. (laughs) Because he is given He is given an unbelievably incredible gift. It's a personal interaction with Jehovah where Jesus reveals truth that shakes him to his core. Can you see how that would be like, yeah, that would really suck for a little bit, but long-term really cool. He experiences the love of Jesus in a way that leaves this rich young ruler sweetly broken. Jesus, with a loving yet harsh conversation, has grabbed hold of this man's heart. And he doesn't grab hold of it because the music was good. 
He doesn't grab hold of it because Jesus told some good jokes in a sermon or had a good illustration or had a good three-point outline that was easy to remember. He grabbed hold of the sermon because he revealed to this man, here's what you really are. Jesus grabbing hold of his heart. Doesn't that actually sound good? Do you like it when Jesus grabs hold of your heart? I'm not talking about the time where you feel good because you liked a worship service. Honestly, I'm just going to be real with you. Like, we so overplay that. Good worship experiences are a dime a dozen. Don't judge me. I'm not saying it's bad. Worship is great. But that's not really where soul-wrecking experience comes from. Soul-wrecking experience comes from when Jesus grabs your heart even when it hurts. That's when he does it best. Look what Paul says, who, by the way, Paul knew anyone about having his life wrecked, doesn't he? Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.32. But when we are judged, in other words, whenever we are, whenever God reveals, whenever we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. So why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Can you see how this is exactly what's happening with the rich young ruler? He's being judged by the Lord so he won't be condemned. So he will get eternal life. That was the whole point of the conversation. Jesus wasn't surprised by him coming and running up and kneeling. What if right now this morning, whether you did it physically or in your mind or whatever, what if you knelt before Jesus, with Jesus, and asked him, hey, how am I doing when it comes to heaven? What if you could ask him that right now? Okay, Jesus, what am I not willing to give up? What is my wealth or prestige? What is the hard truth that you think I need to hear that will crush me this morning? And as in this story, when Jesus loves us, we become blessed when he reveals truth that maybe even makes us very sad at first. Right? Then, once that happens, you can find out what neighborhood you really live in, what you're clinging to more than you're willing to follow Jesus, and only then. What if Jesus is in your neighborhood today, right now, this morning? He's in your business, if you will. Are you ready for a harsh yet loving discussion with him? Um, You know, I'm sure there are some things he could teach us, you and me, that would wreck us like it wrecked the rich young ruler. Even though it was sad, that moment he was walking away in tears might have been the best moment of his life. Because for the first time he realized, this stuff doesn't mean anything if heaven means anything. Maybe, maybe we would even walk away after this interaction with Jesus sad because it was just too much to deal with all at once. Okay, I didn't expect to hear all that when I knelt down and asked you the question. I I really didn't want to go there. So, pardon me, I'm going to have to walk away for just a little bit and take inventory 
I got to start making a list of stuff. Because this is a little bit, this is a little bit too costly. I didn't realize, I didn't sign up for this type of wrecking. But could you also see how if God does give you, if Jesus through His Spirit, through His Word, through His truth, and through His church, by the way, if you're neglecting church, that means your time is too expensive in your neighborhood for following Jesus. But you could see, right, if Jesus does that for you and wrecks you, it could also be quite reassuring. Because I'm going to tell you this. This conversation he had with the rich young ruler, he didn't do it with the Pharisees. He didn't really do it with Herod. Didn't really do it with the high priest. He only has these conversations with those he loves. And he's probably saying, listen, I'm in your neighborhood today. I'd love to have a talk with you. I'm just warning you. You might not like how it feels at first, but the other side is true freedom and true joy. Heavenly Dad, we confess to you that we, well, we don't want to be wrecked. But, but then again, yes, we do. <laughs> we have this love-hate relationship with being wrecked by truth that we don't want to hear, yet we do want to hear, but we don't, we do. We go back and forth. But we acknowledge that if we have these conversations with you and you reveal these things through people, experiences, circumstances, it's a sign that you love us. Jesus, I pray that you would create a church full of hearts and minds willing to hear the tough conversations. And Lord, if we do walk away sad, that you would take that sadness and turn it into a spring of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, thank you everyone for being here today. I hope that that sermon kind of blesses you. And just know that I know there's a lot going on. Uh, I continue to make sure you're encouraged to know that the team is working hard on stuff, especially you Grace Life families at home watching with kids. Uh, we miss you guys so much. The band, we miss you guys. We're working on figuring out ways that we can come back together safely during this time. Uh, but if you need anything during this week, please reach out to us. We love you.